Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out newdealleaders.org to see what I'm talking about. Welcome to an honorable profession. I'm Debbie Cox Bolton, CEO of the New Deal. We're proud to support so many of the inspiring leaders that you hear on this podcast. In this very timely and important episode, I spoke with a national leader on police reform, Montgomery County, Maryland Council Member Will Jawando. Will and I talked about his Law Enforcement Trust and Transparency Act that he passed back in 2019 after the police shooting death of an unarmed black man in his county the year before. We also talked about what he thinks the impact of the guilty verdict in the George Floyd case will be and how to ensure an equitable recovery post-COVID. Will also shared his experiences growing up low-income in the midst of abundance and losing one of his best friends to gun violence and how that propelled him into public service, eventually working for President Obama and running for office himself. Will Jawanda, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It's great to be with you, Debbie. Thanks for having me on uh, what is one of my favorite podcasts. Oh, I love that. Thank you for saying that. Well, I'm super excited to talk to you this week. It's obviously a a historic week in our country, and so um, a lot to cover. I'd love to just dive in. We're talking a couple days after the Derek Chauvin trial verdict came down, and and I'd love to start with that. I know that so many of us breathe a big sigh of relief with those guilty charges and believing that uh, George Floyd's killer was going to be held accountable, but we also know there's so much more work to be done, and while this was an important step, it certainly wasn't sufficient. So I guess I'd just love to start with maybe where you were when you heard the verdict and and what was your reaction? I actually was in the car. I was picking up, you know, as you know, it was around 4.30-ish Eastern time. I was picking up my daughter from school and we were on the way back home. And so I had NPR on. I knew it was coming at some point. And, you know, I'm a civil rights attorney. You know, I've worked in in and around the law as a policymaker and a staffer in the White House. And so we know generally that my brain knew that the fact it was only 11 hours of deliberation, the case was so compelling. It was obviously horrific, uh, the murder of George Floyd, that we should have gotten a guilty verdict, at least if not all guilty verdicts. But I was still, like many people, I think just my heart told me something different, that it this we often don't get justice because of the system that we have. You know, I just didn't allow myself to believe that it would be a good outcome. And and that and that's impacted how I felt about it. And when the verdict was read, uh, which was very matter of fact, you know, the judge is very professional. If you, if you listen to it, you know, I, I had to pull over. I was overcome with emotion. My daughter's looking at me like, you know, what's going on? And, and I was thinking about George Floyd's daughter, Gianna, and that he'll never see her again and how strong she and her family have been. 
and it was just like a relief. I think that was the best way to describe it. It was kind of the first, first emotion was relief, then followed by, you know, just kind of deep sadness for his family and the fact that, you know, this shouldn't have been a surprise, but it still was, right? You know, and I think people have talked about that too. And then just kind of real, a little bit of anger that it's justice is so hard to achieve, even in some small measure in a case like this, that, you know, if you think about what happened, murdered for, you know, we watched for 10 minutes, multiple eyewitnesses testimony, they had to stand there and record it all and, you know, deal with that trauma. You know, the officers standing by doing nothing, uh, you know, just the, the public lynching nature of it. And then a worldwide global protest for months, you know, in response as people watched in horror. And all it took all of that to get a guilty verdict, you know, like, and, and so it's just, uh, so that, that's how I immediately felt. I was with my daughter, I was, but I was happy to be with her because it allowed us the opportunity to kind of process the moment. And this was my oldest daughter. She's, she'll be 11. And, uh, you know, she's, she knows what's going on. So it was, it was, I'm glad she was with me and it was, it was of some comfort. Yeah, I'm so, that's so interesting. I was also with my son in the car coming home from school, uh, my 13 year old. And so I, I, kinda, I know exactly what you're talking about of this, you know, these historic, and we feel, it feels like we've had so many of them in this year, historic uh, moments when it comes to certainly police and race and, and the capital insurrection. I mean, just like all of these things you have to talk to your kids about. It's just a, it's a, it's heartbreaking. It, you know, I hope it gives us a little bit of hope of what happened this week. And, I, and I'd love to ask you about that. I mean, you mentioned the protests that were sparked by George Floyd's death. And I'm going to come back to some of the work you've been doing in Maryland, because you were working on this well before George Floyd's death. And I want to yeah. ask you about that. But just in terms of the protests that were sparked by, by George Floyd, that was some, you know, awakened, right? This has been happening for so long. And we know that something awakened with this, with this instance awakened people. So I'm just curious, where do you think we go from here as a country, you know, with, with, in the, in the wake of this, uh, of this verdict? You know, I think we have where I hope we go and where we go, you know, there's probably a little distance between the two, but I'm, I'm certainly, and I know, New Deal leaders and all of our colleagues, you know, we're going to be working to make sure that my hopes are actualized in that we, this is a watershed moment that we we will talk about our criminal justice system and policing pre-George Floyd and post-George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and so many others. And while this has been happening, we know for a long time to many, many people, the brutality of this, the casual brutality of, of this murder and, and that everyone who was supposed to be protecting and serving wasn't, and everyone who was supposed to be protected and serving was trying to protect all the bystanders. And, and the fa- it, I, I compared this to Bloody Sunday. This was our generation's Bloody Sunday, where we saw people walking across the Edmund Pittis Bridge and beaten, attacked by dogs. And many Americans didn't know that this was happening in that way at that time. And I think, you know, you've had a whole generation of folks that knew have confirmation, but others wake up and you saw the global out, outcry. And so I think we have an opportunity, a unique opportunity to make significant progress. But I mean, here we are almost a year later, the federal bill hasn't passed, right? Um, the I've been pushing stuff at this local level. We've gotten some done and we've got some done in our state in, in Maryland, you know, on use of force and other things, but there's still a lot to do because this system there's a, I, I've said this before, there is a direct and straight line from the slave patrols of the 1700s 
that were the formation and the beginnings and the origins of the police department today uh, to the knee on George Floyd's neck. And you have that system was built over hundreds of years and it's going to take time to extricate the racism and the discrimination from that system and build a better system. But I do think, you know, we're having conversations that just uh, two years ago, we wouldn't be having, you know, we removed police from schools locally and that's happening in other places. We're, we're talking about, you know, reducing the role of police and traffic enforcement and mental health and a whole range of things. So, so I think I hope my hope is that we continue that momentum, but there's always the fear of fatigue. There's some people who will say, and I've heard it already since, since, since the verdict, all right, you know, the, the system worked, justice was done. And, you know, let's, let's just get back to other things, but we can't let that happen. No, I completely agree. And I, to your point, I think that there, you know, the stars had to align, right? As you said, the, 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 the video was there, you know, the police testified that this was not, you know, standard procedure. I mean, just so many things happened to get this guilty verdict. And I feel like you're absolutely right that we just know that, you know, they don't come in so many other cases where they should. And so I absolutely agree with you that we can't, this is not a time to take the foot off the gas on, on these kinds of reforms. One in 2000, one in 2000, I think the New York Times reported, is the odds of a, you know, of a police officer being convicted of a crime for killing a resident. Wow. That is, that is stunning, actually. Let's talk a little bit about what you're doing in Maryland specifically. You, you are definitely a leader in nationally on police reform issues. And as I mentioned, you, this has been something you've been doing for a long time, dating back to when you became a council member in 2008. And you had another terrible shooting in your town, again, Robert White uh, in your county, that led you, I believe, to, to propose and then ultimately pass the uh, Law Enforcement Trust and Transparency Act, the LET Act. Can you tell us a little bit about that and um, what you were seeking to do with that? Yeah, and fortunately, since I proposed that bill, I was sworn in December 4th, 2018. I, I introduced that bill January 15th, 2019. So just a couple of weeks after being sworn in uh, on Martin Luther King's birthday. And what it is now law, it requires independent investigations anytime a, uh, an officer kills a resident. You know, this one of the problems here is that you have police investigating themselves, right? And when a life is taken at the hands of the state, there is no higher at that point. There's the standards are so high and we should be wanting to know exactly what happened in the most independent way possible so that we can prevent it from happening. Right. It's a tragedy. Anytime a life is lost, particularly at the hands of the state. And we don't want any potential for bias or foul play. And so that in the Robert White case, which he was killed just before I was elected, he had a ripped jacket. The officer said, he was walking in his neighborhood. There was no call for service. Officer noticed him and started pursuing him. And Mr. White got flustered. He has had a history of some mental health issues, never a problem, was in his 40s, lived at home, and told the police officer to leave him alone. He, ch- he walked after him for 12 minutes, and eventually Mr. White charged him out of frustration, and he was shot seven times, unarmed African-American man in his, na- in his neighborhood. And that case was reviewed by our, you know, our own police and investigated and no, no, no charges were written, only a two sentence that the force was justified. The officer is still on the force today. And it's, it's a, it's an unfortunate example of many. Um, And since then we've had several other black men be killed. Uh, Just recently, last month we had, uh, you know, uh, someone killed here 
by officers who weren't wearing body cameras. And so we're left to eyewitness testimony and the like. But so that's law now. And, and the state actually had took that legislation and modeled it and passed it in the state of Maryland just a couple of weeks ago. So now any police involved death in the state will be investigated by an independent office in the attorney general's office. So, so that is happening statewide too. So that's one of many things that we've, we've worked on. It was the first piece of criminal justice reform legislation that was introduced in the Montgomery County Council in over 40 years, maybe at all, but definitely 40 years. Amazing. Well, congratulations too on getting that passed statewide. That is a, a huge accomplishment. And then let's, you know, I, there are a number of other things you're working on that maybe we could just spend a minute talking about because yeah, I think quickly. we're interested about, you know, what we can do tangibly, as you said. Sure. You think your leaders in particular are going to be on the forefront of this. So I know you've proposed some other bills around use of force, around police training, and then removing, as you mentioned, the, the school resource officers and trying to redirect that money into more mental health and other supports. So tell yeah. us a little bit about kind of how you're thinking about what else needs to happen. Yeah, sure. So, I, you know, I, there's a continuum here and, and a lot of attention, rightly so, has been focused on the accountability and transparency on the back end after police have committed misconduct. And that's critically important. We need there to be a deterrent effect. We need to know what happened in a timely manner for transparency so that trust can be built. But there's a lot of other downstream issues. And so, you know, what are police spending their time doing, right? We need to, when you say reimagine public safety, it really means reimagining and reallocating resources. Our police have become the catch-all for too many things. People dealing with mental health, people experiencing homelessness, in our schools, right? Traffic enforcement is another example, right? Is if traffic's really about safety, if traffic enforcement's about safety, that does not mean that police officers have to do it. 11% of police involved killings happen as a result of traffic stops like Dante Wright just recently. And for minor violations, and it's disproportionately people of color. So we've been, I've been working with my colleagues to try to remove and some of that disproportionate context. So getting police out of schools, half of our students arrested are black student, black students only represent 20% of the student population, great disproportionality. When you dig into the arrests, low level drug possession, fighting, things that, you know, you and I probably did, you know? And so that's a, that's a part of it. People dealing with mental health crises, if a call comes into 911, we want that to be diverted. If, if it can be handled by a crisis counselor or a social worker, if it doesn't have to be handled by police, we want this people to be skilled to be able to make that referral and then have the staff that can get there in time and intervene. We're studying removing police from traffic enforcement. There's some places in, I think, Berkeley, California has taken steps in that, in that regard. There's a few other places we're looking at that. In Montgomery County, Black residents three times more likely to be pulled over by police. In some of our wealthy areas like Bethesda, uh, which are predominantly white, seven times more likely to be pulled over a study I can uh, commissioned. And we know that you're more likely to get more tickets and to have more negative outcomes, anything from an arrest record to uh, death in the most extreme cases. So we need to eliminate some of that disproportionate conduct. Then training, you know, uh, training gets controversial, but absolutely it's important, right? Who, who are these officers? Where do they come from? How are they recruited? What are they told to do? That's a big piece of the puzzle that I'm, I'm getting ready to introduce legislation around that. The you know, U.S. has some of the lowest amount of time of training of the industrialized world in policing. 24 weeks in Montgomery County, our academy. In the U.S., it's anywhere between 14 and 30 weeks. If you go to parts of Europe and Asia, you'll have 
police training one, two, or three years. It's more professionalized. It's almost like law school. We're going to look to, my legislation will look to update and, and lengthen. And when you have more time, you can teach more things. You can teach more de-escalation and spend more time on the history of policing and on racial equity and what it means and understanding diverse communities and communication skills, things that are frankly not taught enough. And, and it also allows you another opportunity to evaluate, are these the right people? Are these guardians? You know, when I worked on President Obama's 21st Century Task Policing Task Force, we said, you know, one of the premises was that we need guardians, not warriors. And that mentality of that everyone's life matters, I want just as much as mine. I'm a police officer. Mine doesn't matter more than anyone else's, and we want to keep everyone safe. That guardianship mentality is really important. And so, so there's things we need to do on who we hire, how we pay. You know, I've often argued, too, that we need to pay first-year officers more as a recruiting tool to get more better people into the field. Starting pay in our county is $50,000 a year. It's just like teachers. If you want people to do a good job, you should pay them, and there should be high standards. I, I've said we need a smaller, more highly trained, more focused police force. You know, we don't need police focusing on low-level drug offenses or traffic or schools or mental health. We want them focused on homicide, on armed robbery, on carjacking. Those are the things that police should focus on. And in many jurisdictions, mine included, the closure rates for those types of incidences, those most serious, are really low. And so I think part of it is because we have the priorities out of whack. And it's not only not helping us be safer, it's leading to big disproportionality. So those are some of the things we're we're doing here. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. I think there'll be a lot of people interested in some of the specifics of that and what can be done. And I, I hope that this really is a time where we can pass some of this at this window of time. I mean, obviously, police reform is just one piece of, of this. Yeah. And um, when we talk about racial inequities that have persisted for centuries, frankly, it's so much bigger. Um, and there's so many more pieces. And so I want to turn to that for a second. I know when you ran for council in 18, you ran on the idea of the, the MOCO promise, Montgomery County promise, where all county residents are entitled to a safe, vibrant, and inclusive community. And now in line with your vision, you've been talking a lot about post-COVID, as, as so many of us are, about this really unique opportunity we have as we build back better post-COVID to address some of these long-standing racial inequities. So when you're thinking about that, what are some of the issues that you think need to be prioritized in your county? That's a great question. You know, I've build back better or, you know, equitable recovery, you know, pick your name for it. We have a once-in-a-generation opportunity now to really start to address some of these deep inequities that COVID has exposed, right? Um, whether it be health disparities in a real way. You know, African-Americans and Latinos are dying 10 years younger and getting sicker and have the highest rates of COVID. That's due to longstanding health inequities that have not been invested in and, and, and dealt with things like access to healthcare, certainly, but food deserts, you know, the ability to uh, live in communities that aren't environmentally degraded. You know, so there's a whole range of things on these uh, social determinants of health that we need to attack head on. Educational opportunity, right? We know the students that were most likely to fall the furthest behind and the least likely to be back in school right now are communities of color and, and our, our disabled students. And so how do we make sure that we use this? I just convened a task force with one of my colleagues to make recommendations on what are the social, emotional, mental health investments that we need to make at this critical time to help all of our students, but obviously it's gonna disproportionately help some of our students that have been 
furthest behind and are dealing with the most. How do we tackle income inequality, right? And there's a local role for that. You know, I've been pushing progressive taxation locally. We have a local income tax, but it's a flat tax. Mm. Everyone pays 3.2%. You know, Daniel Snyder, who owns the Washington football team, is one of my constituents. You know, he pays 3.2%. So does the single mom of two that makes $30,000 a year. If we were to just tax that top bracket from 3.2 to 3.5, we could raise $40 million a year. So that's $400 million over 10 years that we could invest locally in student supports, wraparound services, expanded healthcare access, improved transportation infrastructure, go down the list. So progressive taxation, I think, is a big thing that we need to look at locally and at the state and, and obviously even more at the national level. Also, we're looking at universal basic income, right? There's some places that are doing that. I think we're unique because we're a wealthy county, but we have great segregation and great disparities, and we have over a million people. I think we can be a good example of how you learn a lot, even in a place that's really expensive to live, but where there are a lot of disparities about how universal basic income can help in that regard. So we're going to be working on a pilot on that so that we can hopefully change some of these systems. You know, we're looking to make our local transportation system free. How do you give people access to that. And then obviously the work in policing and criminal justice. And then how do we help our small businesses? Like one of the things that's been most staggering, women-owned businesses, women in the workforce who, you know, who alone accounted for all of the job losses in December, 156,000 jobs lost by women that same month, 14,000 gained by men, 40% of black businesses are gone. I just introduced a special appropriation that will help our smallest businesses with rental assistance. So, so I think looking at targeted programs that address some of the deep racial inequities, we passed a racial equity law two years ago. Every policy, every bill has to go through a racial equity analysis. But the most important thing at the end of that, we have the information, we have to act on it. And I think right now we're poised to hopefully make some significant investments and, and address these historic inequities. You know, so those are some of the things that we declared racism a public health crisis. I, I introduced a resolution doing that. Again, great, but what, it laid out a number of steps we have to take to actually address these things. And I'm hoping that this moment, this Build Back Better moment, allows us to be bold. The American Rescue Plan, the, the CARES Act, it gives us one-time money that we can make some bold investments but we're going to need to change the systems because that money will run out. And if we don't change the same systems, we'll be back where we were, you know, five, 10 years from now. So I'm really focused on that. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to actually ask you about the American Rescue Plan and then hopefully the American Jobs Plan coming on the heels yeah. of that, right? Uh, with our uh, fellow New Deal friend, dealer friend, uh, Pete Buttigieg at the, at the Transportation Department. How are you thinking about, you were in the White House, as you mentioned, and we'll talk about your career later in a bit, but we finally have now state and local leaders around the country have a partner in the White House uh, yeah. and the Biden-Harris administration who are, you know, truly focused on this question of, of building back better, of, of addressing racial inequities. So I'm just curious about, you know, how you're thinking, I know you're doing some budgeting now, you know, how you're thinking about partnerships with some of that federal money to to use to address some of those problems that you were speaking about. Yeah, it's been, it's been interesting. It's been a nice problem to have to try to shift mindset, like, oh, we actually have someone who wants to, you know, work with us and help us now. President, you know, the fr- previous president uh, was talking about an infrastructure plan for years. Nothing ever happened. And now we have a real opportunity as a former Senate staffer. No one was more happy 
to hear the Senate parliamentarian rule that we could use budget reconciliation more than once, and which, as you know, as this insider talk, dramatically increases the chances that we're going to be able to get this a jobs plan passed. So we're looking at a whole range of things. We've been pouring through the proposals and have had meetings with the White House staff about what are things that we can get teed up, presuming that this bill will pass. You know, there's a lot of things that are in that that I think will be create local incentives. I, for example, housing. We haven't talked much about it. We need more of it. It needs to be more affordable. One of the proposals that's out there in this in the jobs plan is incentivizing with money jurisdictions that are that uh, relax or remove single family zoning restrictions to build different types of housing like duplexes or triplexes or quads. It's kind of commonly referred to missing middle. So housing that's not just single family, it's not just high rise apartment that's super expensive, this kind of middle level housing that creates different price points and different opportunities for home ownership and renters. And I put a, I put a zoning proposal forward to, to allow these types of housing in single family zones that are near transit within a mile of Metro and other transit stations. And if my bill were to pass, we would, in, in the jobs bill passed, we would get money incentivized, you know, that we could then use to build more affordable housing in our jurisdiction. So it's just one example of the type of kind of carrot approach, not to mention the enormous opportunity in green jobs to kind of rebuild our infrastructure, to change our environmental outcomes. And, you know, we, we are the first jurisdiction in the country. We just, uh, we will have the most electric uh, school buses in the nation. We just purchased an order for the largest, will be the large, they told us we'd be the largest in the nation. So that's, we want to continue to electrify our other bus fleet and, uh, and other things. And so I think there's just so much opportunity for jobs, for the environment, for more housing, you know, the education money. I just think criminal justice, there's even some of this jobs bill that can be used to retrain formally incarcerated individuals and get them into the workforce. So it's just, they were really intentional and thoughtful about the proposal. So I'm just really hoping, in addition to the CARES Act, which has been extremely helpful, and we're finding ways to help bring people back above board with that, but the opportunity to potentially partner on a big jobs plan for all of our jurisdictions is, is just enormous. Yeah, it's so exciting. I mean, really, it's it's um, it has the I think the potential to be transformative, and that's what we Absolutely. need right now, right? So, I would love to ask you one more question, just on the racial equity front, because you talked about health uh, outcomes, and obviously, since we're we're all looking at the vaccine trajectories right now, and it seems like there's been a little bit of a shift that kind of the supply. We've got the supply online now, finally, and that's not the yeah. issue, but they're starting to, in some jurisdictions, slow yeah. down a little bit on the demand. And clearly there's some issues around vaccine hesitancy, particularly in communities of color. How are you, how's that going in Montgomery County? And are you seeing that, or, you know, are you working on trying to, to work with some of those communities to make sure that people get vaccinated? Yeah, we still have both things going on because we have more people that have requested the vaccine than we have vaccine. That is, it's getting better. We are, we have about 40% of our pop, of our 1 million residents that have gotten at least one dose. There's obviously s- racial disparities. Black and Latino residents are low, much lower than their population. White residents, Asian residents are higher. So we're working on that. We have targeted zip codes based on the highest case rates and death rates and also where we have social vulnerability, where we are 
prioritizing those zip codes for if people sign up and pre-register with our health department, we're giving them appointments first. We're using that as a, a, a tool to kind of have an equity framework. We're also cutting PSAs. You know, I'm the only African-American countywide elected official. And so I've been very helpful with my colleagues, working with my colleagues to get the message out about the vaccine. So we're trying to attack it from both air sides, make the make it more available because they feed off of one, each other, one another. If, you, if you're kind of, oh, I don't know, and it's hard to get the vaccine or you're not really sure, that feeds into hesitancy. And so we've uh, retasked our census outreach team that we had, we have a community engagement team that was out they're doing door to door in certain communities where we have low uh, vaccination rates that are, are mostly our African-American Latino communities, and they're knocking in door to door. We've set up eight hubs, food service, vaccination, other things in key parts of the county where people have been getting drive by and grab and go food and other services since the pandemic began. So we're doing a number of things. I actually had tried to introduce a health regulation. We sort of, we're the board of health for our county as well that would have prioritized younger Black and Latino residents to get the vaccine. And our governor, the night before we did it, took the authority away to, that gave us the local authority to do that. And it was really unfortunate because there's no clearer case than in the case of COVID death rates that you should use race and ethnicity as a targeting factor. You know, we did it with age because the data was clear. If you, the older you were and you got COVID, you had a higher chance of getting really sick or dying. And the data is also clear with race and ethnicity because of, you know, longstanding health disparities and racism itself, uh, which is a social determinant of health. You know, the life expectancy of African-Americans has dropped three years. It's about one and a half years lower for Latinos. And a 55-year-old Black or Latino person gets COVID. They die at a higher rate than a 65-year-old white resident who gets COVID. And that is clear. And so I said, if we're pro- we should have opened up, and what my Board of Health regulation would have done is said, with our health department doses, we're going to open up to 55 and up for Black and Latino at the same time we were at 65 for white. And so you still would have had people, everyone be able to access it, but you would have prioritized that group. And I think that would have helped with hesitancy because we're saying, hey, you got to you can get out here and get it. We, we weren't able to do that, but we still use the zip code model as a kind of a second best. But I just think we, we're going to have to one of the things that I think Kobo has showed us is we we're going to have to come up with different ways to address racial and social justice inequities that we haven't used before because the, what we did before wasn't working. So we're, I'm trying to push us on that. Yeah, good for you. There's a whole other conversation we can have. We'll do the next time you're on about the state preempting local uh, action. Actually, oh That's yeah. A whole <laughs> but I, I, but I want to get to uh, to kind of how you know this is an honorable profession, and uh, you know part of why we started this podcast was to you know just talk to people about their journey in the public service. A lot of our listeners are thinking about public service or interested in kind of how people got where they are. So I'd love to ask you a couple questions about your own your own journey. Sure. Um, I know you were raised by a, a single mom mostly after your parents divorced in, um, in Silver Spring and had, you know, not an easy childhood, but you really excelled academically. You received a scholarship to St. John's College High School. And I also know that tragically you lost a, a close friend uh, when you were a teenager to gun violence. And so, first of all, I'm so sorry about that. Um, I appreciate it. And, and I'm just kind of interested in how you think about your early experiences and how they 
may have helped propel you into a decision to go into public service eventually? Yeah, well, I appreciate the question. And, um, you know, I was talking to a group of University of Maryland students earlier today, actually, about, you know, their journey and what they might want to do in public service and advocacy. You know, I really, it really came out of, I wasn't one of these people that knew I wanted to be in policy or public service or run for anything. It really just came out of me experiencing my community. You know, I grew up son of a Nigerian father and from who immigrated here fleeing a civil war. My mom, a white woman from Kansas, grew up in a small farm town where there wasn't a lot of economic opportunity. Somehow my dad came on a scholarship to that small Kansas farm town, Hayes, Kansas. They met and moved east uh, for economic opportunity and settled in Silver Spring, Maryland, where I was born and raised. And they split early and we were very low income before. When they split, it was even worse. You know, and I realized and I saw firsthand, you know, what it meant to live in a poorly maintained, dilapidated apartment, you know, where roaches and mice and you know, they're flying gnats that could got on you, couldn't sleep and, you know, just horrible. No one should have to live like that anywhere. And how that happened in the midst of abundance. And, you know, when I, my mom worked in, in, a, in downtown Silver Spring and we lived about two, three miles away and it was night and day, you know, as far as what her job, her office building. And thankfully she had that job because I spent most of my after school hours there. I saw that this area was developing and they were building all this nice stuff. And in my community, it was really poor. And it just really, I, I even for early on, I was like, why is that the case? It just didn't make sense. And then when I uh, got the scholarship to my, to this private high school, I really saw me and my friends go one way and I went another and it culminated with me, unfortunately losing one of my best friends in an act of gun violence. I was at his funeral. I was getting ready to go to college on a scholarship. He was in a box and it, it made me also, in a real way, analyze what I really had been analyzing my whole life. What's the cause of these inequities? And, you know, I think it just motivated me to really investigate. And I started thinking about things that are really policy and budgetary decisions. You know, like I had access to my mom worked one good living wage paying job. Right. So that meant she could make enough that we ate every night, even though we didn't have a ton. And she could be home with me after school. His mom worked two jobs. She cleaned houses and did another job. And so she wasn't around as much. There wasn't an after-school program at his school. There wasn't, I, I did have access to mentors. My after-school program was hanging out at her office, which is what her boss allowed. And I met all these great mentors and she worked at a newsletter publishing company and I had access to a free after-school program almost. And so I realized that, you know, Things like transportation infrastructure, his mom going two and a half hours on the bus back and forth, wasn't home, after school programs, uh, being able to work a living wage job, you know, stable and clean housing. These are all, you know, policy budgetary decisions that we decide as a society to do or to not do. And so that's how I kind of got into that. And I realized when I realized it wasn't that I was better than him or he was worse than me, that it was really these access to opportunity and these decisions that were made external to each of us, it got me really upset. And you could say in a, in a way, I'm really been on a 25 year plus journey, just trying to make those that less likely the outcome that happened to him and, and expand those levels of opportunity to everybody. And, you know, that's, that's what really has driven me along with, you know, 
all the great people I've met along the way, working for President Obama, working for Nancy Pelosi and Sherrod Brown and serving as a staffer. But I didn't know I was going to run for office until I got on Capitol Hill and realized it all came together. I said, oh, this is where the decisions are made. This is how things are done. And they have a direct connection to the lives of people. And uh, and I've just, I've always enjoyed it as a staffer. I've enjoyed it as an elected official. And it is an honorable profession because, you know, it's long hours, it's hard work. But, you know, when you get public policy right, I don't have to tell you, Debbie, you can help a lot of people. When you get it wrong, a lot of people can be harmed. Absolutely. I do want to ask you one thing I, I read, and I want to know if it's true. So you mentioned uh, your work on Capitol Hill, and then you went, uh, worked for Senator, then Senator Obama, and then got to the White House. I did read that you kind of, uh, I don't want to use the word stalked, but you kind of were very persistent <laughs> about uh, you're working for other people, and something about Barack Obama spoke to you, and you really wanted to work for him and, you know, applied more than once. Is that is that a true story? It is a true story. I actually often tell it as a example of uh, perseverance. You know, I'm, I'm from Silver Spring, Maryland, no connection to Chicago, no connection to Illinois. I had gotten an internship in Nancy Pelosi's office. And actually the way I got that internship in Nancy Pelosi's office was when I was at Catholic University in DC, I started a chapter of the NAACP there. And the school ended up denying the chapter. And, you know, it was crazy. They cited crazy reasons. They said, you already have a black student union. and it, it, it advocates for abortion rights and we're a Catholic institution. So they had these horrible reasons. And so Kwasi Fume was the president of the NAACP at the time, came in, now Congressman Fume again for the second time, came in and I got thrust into this national conversation. The headline of the Washington Post was Catholic denies NAACP and a picture of me. And so we protested for months and actually the, the NAACP adult chapter supported our protest and the president of that branch, which is a volunteer position, still is, was a woman by the name of Lorraine Miller, who in her day job was a senior advisor to Nancy Pelosi. And so I, through that chapter, she said, you should come be an intern on Capitol Hill because I wasn't thinking about politics. And that's how I started. And so around a couple of years, I did that for a couple of years and they ended up hiring me. And around that time, this guy named Barack Hussein Obama, you know, gave a speech in Boston that we all probably remember some. I remember all of it. I could basically say it verbatim. And I had never heard a politician speak that way. He, you know, he was saying things like, you know, very empathetic, as you know, speaking to all of us. But he, you know, he had a line where he said, we need to eradicate the slander that a black youth with a book is acting white. Mm-hmm. And I had never heard it's something I had experienced growing up being biracial, but a lot of people experience, you know, the fact that whiteness was associated with intelligence uh, because of our and that you know, and just the, all the history of that. And just hear someone say something like that at, on that stage. I was just like, this guy is different. So I, I read his book in like two days, The Dreams from My Father. And and when he got elected, I was like, I got to work for this guy. So I wrote him a three-page letter. I would go to the office on my lunch break, walk across the Capitol from Pelosi's office and just go to the staff assistants and say, hi, I'm Will Jawando. I work for Nancy Pelosi. I'd love to work here. Can you guys, you know, you know, they're like, yeah, sure. Okay. Thank you. know, <laughs> Good luck. And so, but I did it every week for about five months. And uh, so at that point in the fifth month, I know everybody, you know, they've seen me, we're like friends. And uh, I was there and one of the, the deputy chief of staff, this guy named Mike Stratmanis, who's one of my mentors and lifelong friends, came out of the back and was like, who's this guy that keeps coming around? And, and they, the staff assistants told him, he said, all right, well, let's get a coffee. And, you know, and I explained to him what I was trying to do. 
and I, I met Barack uh, in the hallway of Hart. You know, shortly thereafter. You know, we have a interesting similarities biographically. Is a, I have an African dad, a white mom from Kansas. My my fiance at the time, who's my wife of fifteen years now, was named Michelle. You know, so it was a lot of so. so there you go. Another lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> and, and all lawyers. Yeah, all of us were lawyers. You know, my wife's lawyer as well. So uh, so I got introduced to him that way. And I was like, oh, I couldn't speak. And yeah. And so about three months after that, they hired me and I, I took a job and uh, it's been a great, a great ride. But yeah, I tell people like, you know, I could have gone and dropped off my resume and then never come back and never been heard from again. You got to keep at it. You got to keep pushing. I absolutely love that story. I'm so glad I asked that question. Um, it's such a great lesson, right? About going after what you want and being persistent and having a vision. And um, and by the way, I was going to ask you about the NCAA chapter. NC oh, okay. Chapter because um, I, I read that story too. And I just thought that was so just amazing that, you know, that you were thrust into that kind of advocacy role in college. Presumably that really, I didn't know about the connection to the Pelosi fellowship. Yeah, yeah. Clearly was a, an interesting foyer into the public spotlight on a really important issue early on. Absolutely. And yeah. yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, and I didn't know it. And I think the best things I will say, if, if you're pursuing what you're passionate about and you're trying to help people, the opportunities will come. They will, you know, they, and, and, and it may not be what you think. And, and that was, that was certainly the case in that, in that regard. I love that. I will close with a final question, which is another similarity between you and former President Obama, which is you have a book coming out next spring, like our former president, called My Black Father. So I would just love, if you don't mind, just to hear a little bit about the story yeah. you were hoping to tell and what we'll, we'll look forward to next spring. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. I'm about, I'm writing it now. Um, I mean, I'm a little, little, about halfway through. And, it, you know, it's, it's titled My Black Fathers, The Seven Men Who Made Me Whole. And it really tells the story of my life. It's a memoir, but it tells the story through the lens of these seven black men, two of whom, one's my stepfather, one's my actual father. Uh, one is President Obama. One's my fourth grade math teacher, Mr. Williams, the only black male teacher I ever had. It, it tells my life through the story of their surrogate fatherhood and mentorship that really gave me the component parts I needed on the journey to wholeness, you know, and, and it's still, it's still happening, right? We're never fully complete, but these men stepped in at critical points when my father wasn't on the scene, his absence created the necessity uh, for this. And I was very fortunate to be in a community where these men were there. And so I tell, you know, my story, you know, I went to six different schools between K through eighth grade and bounced around and, had a lot of things that could have been really unstable and, 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 you know, were unstable and could have been unsettling. But I, these men moored me in each step of the way and, and I learned things from each of them. And so I'll tell that story. It'll be, it's, it'll be about fatherhood. It'll be about ma black masculinity. It'll, you know, put to rest some of these stereotypes and, and, and hopefully be a pretty interesting story as well. And it, it's also, created the space for me to reconcile with my own father later in life. You know, um, he got cancer in uh, 2011, uh, lived his last four years with me and my wife and my children. And we really reconciled before he passed. And, you know, I tell the story of that as well. And so, so it's, uh, you know, I, I hope it'll be a, a good book. It's, it's a deeply personal book. You know, one of the things that gave me the idea to write it was, I was featured a couple of years ago in the New York Times as a as a data point in this study on race and income inequality. And they took 
uh, 20 million children that were born between 1978 and 1983. And I'm in that, in that range. There were 20 million children born in that window in the U.S. And they looked at what their parents were making at the time. They, they combined IRS and census data and other, other data. What were your parents making when you were born? So where did you fall in the income distribution? And then now what are these children making 35, 40 years later? And, and they used it it's the, the most longitudinal study that had ever been about race and income. And it showed some really devastating things that in 99% of communities, black boys and white boys had a over 10% gap in income, even though they came from the same exact starting point. And so, you know, same, not, and not just income, but level of education of the parents, you know, all the stuff, you know, from the census, you know, nuclear family, you know, all the things that are used as excuses to say, well, that's why this happened to this kid or that kid. And really only thing left was race. So it was a landmark study done by Harvard and Stanford and with IRS and census. And I was used in the story as the kind of social, you know, uh, as the example, because I grew up in one of these 1% communities there are 1% communities where black boys and white boys do similarly well when they come from the same background. And Silver Spring, Maryland, 20910 is one of those communities. And I didn't live there, but my mom worked there. And one of the things that they showed in this study is that, and while they were talking to me, they were like, well, what's going on in this zip code that in 99% of the country, this isn't true. And in here, it's true. And one of the things that they were able to distinguish from these zip codes is that there is a high proportion of working class black fathers that are present in these communities. And it's, it's not the only thing, but it was one thing. And so they wanted to, and I had worked on My Brother's Keeper with President Obama, and I was involved in policy work around these issues. So they, they used me as a, an example. And, and you know when I think about it, three of these men that are in my book, I met in 20910. I met in at my mom's job in this zip code that became my one of my black fathers. And so it, it kind of gave me the idea to frame the book in that way. And I talk about the study in the book and tell my story, but I thought it might be interesting for you to know that. So yeah, no, I think it's fascinating. I'm super excited to read that book, actually. And I hope you will promise to come back to oh, when the book is uh, comes out and we'll talk more about it because I think it's it's just so it's just so telling, right? About, you know, and so instructive about what we have to be aware of so that we can fix these things. Right. And, um, you know, and I, I just want to say, uh, Will, you know, I mean, I'm so grateful to all of you who step up to serve, you know, in public office. And I really believe like we were talking about earlier that this is a, once in a generation, once in a century opportunity to transform this country in so many ways and to address these longstanding racial inequities in particular. And I'm just so grateful to have leaders like you on the front lines of it because it gives me a lot of hope we're going to get there. So thank you for coming on an honorable profession and thank you for everything you do every day. Well, thank you, Debbie. And thank you for putting this group together. It's, it's helpful to all of us to have compatriots in the struggle and New Deal is a big part of that. So really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks, Will. Thanks for listening to An Honorable Profession. Please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders. And keep asking your elected officials to be honorable. Boots Row Group produces podcasts. I'm Ryan Coonerty. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast.